Welcome to another episode of the Good Mood Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, because uh, over the years, I've seen quite a few patients with a focus with a practice that focuses in mental health. I've seen quite a few patients with OCD, and I thought I would pull together an episode that describes the neuroscientific underpinnings of OCD some of the nutritional and naturopathic therapies and some of the behavioral therapies that are useful in the treatment of OCD. Just to give you a background and an understanding of what naturopathic medicine might offer to this really intrusive and upsetting and troubling condition. So my name is Dr. Tali Marcajani. This is the Good Mood Podcast. And this episode is called, It's Not Me, It's OCD. So we'll start with the with the basics. OCD is is more prevalent than childhood diabetes or asthma and usually starts occurring in childhood or early adolescence. It affects 1 in 40 people and it's the fourth leading mental health condition. I have come to understand that OCD is an actual mental health condition. It's probably one of the few mental health conditions. And by this, what I mean is that it's a cognitive disorder. It actually is located, the condition is located in the brain and in the cognition and mental, um, in, in, in it's a mental condition versus depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, virtually every other condition that we term mental health conditions that are more complex and that they arise in both the brain and the body. OCD, we have a circuit that we can identify that is out of whack in OCD. It's called uh, colloquially the fixed worry circuit. So more research is showing that other mental health conditions are um, you know, located in the body, there's a gut-brain connection that can affect depression and anxiety. Anxiety seems to be dysregulation of the nervous system and our and our stress system. Depression seems to be um, associated with inflammation in the body that that's that affects the brain. And of course, our body and our brain are not separate. So doing things to support the body and to lower inflammation, anything that will support the brain will also help with OCD. But OCD is a, a actual cognitive disorder. So OCD is is characterized by obsessions and compulsions, so obsessive compulsive disorder. And they have to be bad enough to cause functional impairment. So a lot of people will have similar symptoms to OCD. They'll, they'll experience obsessions or these little mini compulsions. I think of obsessions, you know, can can occur on a spectrum. And if you have a tendency to anxiety, um, you may be experiencing a lot of thought loops, a lot of intrusive thoughts, a lot of, um, you know, issues without, you know, not being able to get your brain off a hamster wheel of thought, urge, image. And that could occur very much like OCD, but OCD, in OCD, the obsessions are pervasive and they're impairing functioning. The rate of suicide, the risk of suicide is quite high with OCD because the obsessions are very, they're they're a very negative experience. And OCD, essentially, it's it's some term it the doubting disease, and there it's it's characterized by a ton of uncertainty, uh, a need for constant reassurance. OCD ultimately is worrying about worrying, 
And it's the form of the obsession and compulsion that is important, not the content. So Sigmund Freud, back in the day, if somebody with OCD approached him, he may be interested in the content of the obsessions and the content or the character of the compulsions. So it'd be like, you know, why hand washing? Why, why, why are you always, um, why are you obsessing about cleanliness and contamination? Maybe this has something to do with your father. This is actually not very helpful for OCD because it's the form that we're concerned with. And in OCD, there ultimately is a brain lock and this is the title of a, a book by Jeffrey Schwartz, a medical doctor, but essentially the brain is locked. It's a neurological problem and there are identifiable circuits, brain circuits that are overworking, that are causing these intrusive thoughts and urges. And it's almost like a snowball. It's like, it doesn't really matter if it's handwashing or contamination or fear that you're going to go to hell. And we'll talk about the different kinds of obsessions and compulsions because they do occur in categories. And sometimes they're not... Um, all-encompassing. Many people with OCD will be focused on certain types and characteristics of certain compulsions, but it's still, and, and this may occur due to childhood trauma. There may be a reason that certain obsessions exist and, and that it's, it's one obsession, not another, but to dig deeper and to understand why and to ask questions like, what kind of person are you if you have these kind of obsessions is not helpful you know, and, and very often the, well, in, in virtually every single case, the nature of the obsessions does not reflect the type of person or the values of the person with OCD. Now, there are a few conditions that are similar to OCD. You have conditions that are associated with OCD, like trichotillomania, which is compulsive hair pulling, dermatillomania, which is compulsive skin picking, which I actually suffer from as a child was something that I had and, and lesser known binge eating disorder might be associated with OCD compulsive eating um, and, um, and Tourette syndrome may have some connection to OCD, although they're different conditions. There's also obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And this is different from OCD because it, as a personality disorder, it's a little more like, works or personality idiosyncrasies. Now this can become non-functional in some people, but like many personality disorders, there typically doesn't seem to be the same insight and awareness of this being a condition. There's often no, no desire to change one's ways. So the person may actually enjoy and take pride and pleasure in washing and cleaning um, and maybe believe that the problem lies in others. Like if others were as clean as me, the world would be a better place type of thing. Um, or perfect is the enemy of, the, you know, and in an obsessive compulsive disorder, perfect is sort of the enemy of the good. So there may be a very, very high rate of, of um, perfectionism. There, there's perfectionism, there's orderliness, um, often an inability to accept help, maybe because the, the problem is so entrenched in the personality that even if there is ex shame and, and often in most personality disorders like narcissism, um, there, there is chronic and, and pervasive, pervasive shame. The person with OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, um, may not be able to locate the condition as outside of themselves and may not be able to experience help or to see it as a condition. 
It's also, uh, there's an extreme rigidity associated with OCPD and it's very pervasive. So there isn't typically a specific subtype like you could find in OCD where it might be contamination OCD or harm OCD. There's also a, a difference between health anxiety and OCD subtype where one fears getting sick or getting an illness. Um, so many people will say they have health anxiety when maybe they're experiencing OCD-like obsessions and possibly compulsions. Um, so health anxiety is where we really feel and catastrophize body sensations. You feel kind of a, tw a twitch in your right hip and you start to imagine what it might be, or you're, you're very aware of the sensations in your abdomen. And that can start to get the mind going and start to get the person to, to, to you know, to just to start um, possibly obsessing, but to start worrying about what they might have. In OCD, the person doesn't necessarily think they have the illness, um, but they may fear getting it, or they may fear that they already have a specific illness. It's not so much um, noticing a, a body sensation and then catastrophizing it. It, the catastrophization is a little bit removed from the body. It, again, it's more cognitive. So there can be a lot of overlap with those two conditions, but there, there is a distinction. So again, OCD, you could think of it as the doubting disease, purely cognitive disorder. Um, there's something in the brain called the fixed worry circuit that is overworking and heating up in the brain. And my patients with OCD will describe that there's this, this hamster wheel running in their mind. And it's like one of my patients said, she's like, it's like a tape playing on a loop that I can't get out of. So OCD typically has obsessions and compulsions and the compulsions are typically behaviors that, that are exhibited. Um, there can be mental compulsions and there can also be something called pure OCD where the person only experiences obsessions. So it's just a purely mental act. There's no behavior associated with it. And, um, and so many people may not notice anything different about this person, let's say, or that they're experiencing OCD or that they're suffering. It's more, it's purely internalized, um, silent and hidden condition. Although the suffering is, is, could be just the same. Um, and sometimes an, another obsession is used to ne to neutralize um, the uh, the another obsession. So somebody may be okay. I need to think about this in order to neutralize or fix an obsession that I have. So. What are obsessions? Obsessions are intrusive, unwelcome, distressing thoughts, urges, and mental images. Obsession comes from the word, the Latin word besiege. So, um, and, and the thoughts always create stress and anxiety. They're never pleasant. They don't fade away. They keep intruding into the mind over and over again against your will. And they're often against your values too. And so in that way, they're often experienced as repugnant and disgusting and horrifying. And there's often this anxiety of how could I think that way? And there often is a personalization that can happen with OCD. And that's, it's a very important part of the healing process is to understand that it is a brain disorder 
and that the brain is on a thought loop and that the nature of the thoughts do not reflect you as a person. And so this is why psychodynamic therapy, like the sort of Freudian kind is unhelpful because that type of therapy is always asking like, why, why are you thinking this? What, where did, you know, what kind of person are you? Where do you think, you know, often like the nature, like I said, the nature of those thoughts can come from trauma. There can be um, a, a pragmatic reason, but in healing the OCD, it's probably not helpful to go there first. And I'll explain why in a second. Now, an obsession is different from rumination. We often think of rumination, like, you know, this kind of masticating on thoughts in the mind, but rumination doesn't always have to be unpleasant. Like rumination can be pleasant things. You know, it can be like you're fantasizing about a romantic, like a, a romantic encounter, thinking about an attractive person, or you're dreaming about things, or you're, you're sort of um, masticating and digesting plans. In Chinese medicine, we call this spleen chi deficiency, which occurs from like chronic kind of rumination, like a cow who's, like a, and this is where it comes from, right? It's like a ruminant, a cow that's constantly masticating and chewing. <laughs> and we're sort of doing that with the mind. We're metabolizing and thinking, and it could be neutral thoughts, pleasant thoughts, not just unpleasant thoughts. Obsessions are un, unpleasant and they're, um, again, they're intrusive they're um, unwelcome and they're, they're very distressing in the majority of cases. So examples of, of obsessions are uh, about dirt, contamination, uh, the need for order and symmetry, hoarding, saving. There can be sexual content, repetitive rituals. There can be nonsensical doubts, such as you failed to do some routine task like paying a mortgage Right, so this constant doubt, this constant worry, this need for reassurance about things, religious obsessions, aggressive content. So, and that can be really upsetting for people that experience it. There's a subtype called harm OCD um, that that can be tough. Superstitious fears, and so this um, this presenter at the conference for um, the naturopathic association for um, oh my gosh, what's it called? It's called the psychiatric association for natural of naturopathic physicians, the psych NP ANP. So in our conference this year in 2021, Gregory DeVore gave a presentation in OCD and he talks about the four fundamental catastrophes. So there's sort of four main subtypes of OCD or the types of obsessions. And so the first one is obsessions relating to catastrophes of the mind so that you might go crazy or that you might lose control. The social, that you might get rejected, um, right? Or be cast out in some, in some form. And I have patients who experience obsessions around work, and many are misdiagnosed as having anxiety, I think. There can be catastrophes around the body, right? So dying or getting sick, having an illness, contamination, and spiritual, you know, go to hell or be damned. As as I said, it's always a negative emotional experience to be intruded upon by an obsessive thought and thought loop. They're intrusive, they're negative, they're upsetting, they're emotionally taxing and and terrible. Compulsions now are behaviors that are formed 
in or performed in a vain attempt to to sort of exorcise the fears and anxieties caused by the obsessions. So it's an attempt to neutralize the intensity of the obsession and to provide relief. So often the the feeling, the emotion produced by the obsession. So now OCD is a cognitive disorder, right? So the obsessions are cognitive in nature. And we'll explain how that, that brain loop works. It's part of actually the healing process to understand what's happening in the in the brain. But the but those obsessions trigger negative emotions. And those emotions can be so strong. The alarm system in the brain is going off in such a way that to the untrained mind, what Jeffrey Schwartz in his book, Brain Lock, calls the untrained mind, um, it becomes so overwhelming that the person with OCD gives in and performs a compulsive behavior. The problem is, though, that the behavior sets forth a vicious cycle. So it provides momentary relief. But this is how our brain works, is when something provides relief, a, a feedback loop is initiated. And the more compulsive behaviors that are performed, the more that th- that that cycle is reinforced. So there's a cycle where you have an obsession, anxiety re- reside, re, um, resulting from the obsession, followed by a compulsion to neutralize the anxiety, to provide relief, and then the obsession again. And so the overwhelming feeling and need to perform the compulsion is just reinforced and strengthened. And performing the compulsion, experiencing the relief provides legitimacy to the brain loop that created that obsession. So often the obsessive thoughts become more demanding, more tenacious, and these neural pathways are reinforced. It's like when you're driving your, I think like an Etch-a-Sketch, when you're or you know, driving your bike or your car through a muddy road, the more you, times you go over that road, the deeper the ruts caused by the tires are formed. And, and the more reinforced and the, the deeper the ruts become. And our brain is very similar to that. When we have a neural pathway that works, so something happens that creates a negative emotion, then we do something that creates a, a relief, neutralizes that negativity. So a compulsion is never po- it never feels good. And we'll talk about that. There's a difference between a compulsion and addiction, and that a compulsion does never never provides the person with pleasure, just relief from negativity, negative emotion and anxiety. But the brain learns and it says, okay, great. So we've, um, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've gotten relief and therefore this obsession must be legitimate. So, you know, and so when these ruts are formed, these neural pathways become entrenched, it becomes this, this cycle, this wheel that is almost seems impossible to get off of. And so it's like your, your car is stuck in gear and you can't switch gears and the gear shift becomes more and more stuck. And there's actually a part of the brain, the caudate nucleus that we call the gear shift that is overworking in OCD. But when that gear shift is stuck and that cycle is reinforced, it can become so bad and so pervasive and so non-functional that people with OCD, this is what drives um, many sufferers to suicide. 
So it's a real problem and it's really important to understand why OCD is happening and where it comes from so that people can start to train their brain and start to fill in those ruts, repave the, the highway and create new neural pathways and be able to loosen up that stuck gear shift and switch it. So again, compulsions are experienced as, as quite painful. They provide relief from the anxiety, but, but the person with OCD is, isn't experiencing any pleasure from them. And, you know, there's a part, as we'll, call, we'll talk about this part of the brain or part of the psyche, the impartial witness. If the impartial witness could comment on this compulsive behavior, they wouldn't like it. So examples of compulsions are hand washing, cleaning, having things just right. So there's this type of OCD, just right OCD. There's no register to say, okay, you got it. Uncertainty prevails and there's this need to keep going and, and, and checking to make sure that something is right or, or else a fundamental catastrophe will occur. Um, and that could be unrelated to the thing that needs to be right. So this could be something like flicking a pen the right way. It could be really random, writing your signature over and over again. Um, and this constant doubt prevails. You never get that like, okay, I'm done. Like think of the feeling when you check items off a list or you finish a task, there's this settling in your, in your mind and in your emotions. And that doesn't happen with, with many forms of OCD and well with OCD in general, but with just right OCD in particular. Other compulsions can be hoarding or collecting, um, checking compulsions such as checking the door lock, stove, checking the body, um, and many, many others. So there could be pathological slowness in carrying out routine activities, blinking or steering rituals, asking somebody for reassurance over and over again, possibly the need to confess something, touching, tapping, rubbing certain objects, excessive list making, mental rituals such as reciting silent prayers or mantras, um, things like avoiding stepping on sidewalk cracks, right? It's a classic one because that's sort of suggested to us as children. Rigid bedtimes so something, and this is different from just having a schedule. It's like if, some, if you don't have your bedtime at exactly 10.07, PM, something catastrophic will happen and it might be unrelated to having a bedtime. Someone will be harmed or something like that. Um, or other rituals associated with superstitious beliefs. Um, and what is what is you know consistent in a lot of compulsions is that there is a feeling of dread if some arbitrary act is not performed. Now, it's important to highlight that people don't do anything morally objectionable because of OCD, right? So the obsessions can be pretty horrific. That, and this is the, the difference between OCD or and psychopathy, for example, right? So someone with OCD may have um, obsess obsessions related to harming someone they love or their pet or something like that. And those may be very graphic images. They may be detailed they, and they're, they're, they're experienced by the person as horrible. OCD can't take away your will and it, it can't make you do something that you believe is wrong. And this is the thing with psychopathy. Typically those types of thoughts and images may be experienced as pleasureful. In OCD, they're experienced as repugnant, horrific. There's a, a ton of shame from having these obsessions. And the person with OCD will avoid whatever 
is associated with that obsession. So if someone with OCD is experiencing um, thoughts of harming their pet, they, they'll want to avoid their pet. They'll want someone around when they're with their pet. So they're trying to prevent themselves from performing or acting out the compulsion or the obsession rather. And then they'll perform perhaps an unrelated compulsion to try to neutralize that obsession. Like if I don't step on the, the sidewalk cracks correctly, I might harm my dog. Now, again, the person, so Jeffrey Schwartz talks about this in an interview. He says, you know, his patients will ask him, they'll say things like, but how do I know I won't harm children? You know, like, is there a possibility that I could, you know, how do I know that, that I won't do it? And Dr. Schwartz um, says, he goes, you know, there's no way I can tell you because I don't know, but I'll put it this way. He's like, if of all the people I would pick to babysit my children, he's like, I would probably pick somebody who has OCD and has obsessions around harming children in some way, because you'll be more afraid of my children than they need to be of you. And so that's, I think, a way to highlight that is that you know, the person with OCD would be horrified having to babysit children because they don't trust themselves to be around children when there really is nothing actually to fear. It's just the brain telling lies, essentially. It's the OCD at work. Um, Again, yeah, people with OCD consider their uh, their obsessions um, and intrusive thoughts repulsive and upsetting and horrifying, and they want to avoid the subject of of those obsessions. So again, OCD will recap, there's a cycle that forms that entrenches neural pathways where there's an obsession, there's an anxiety, there's a compulsion to neutralize that anxiety that provides relief and that perform, and then an obsession, the obsession is reinforced. Um, now, for somebody who's more experiencing obsessions, there may still be a cycle, right? The, the obsessions ultimately are, are spiraling and spinning. And there may be certain triggers that set those off. There may be certain thoughts that set those off. Um, And so it's different from necessarily like mental uh, um, compulsions, right? So like um, prayer or reciting mantras in the head, those could still be considered compulsions. Pure OCD is more just obsessions that that, that the person has not been able to find relief from. And with OCD, just like with anxiety, there is uh, there's difficulty tolerating uncertainty. And with OCD, there is a constant need for reassurance. So normally, you know, some people say, well, what's the difference between OCD and just, uh, you know, you know, maybe if you, you might think that your partner, your romantic partner is cheating on you and, so you may be having obsessive, obsessive, intrusive thoughts about that. Now, you might ask your partner and you might get an answer or you might ask your partner about something specific. Like, where were you last night when uh, it took you 10 minutes to respond to my text? And they'll say, oh, I was just, you know, cooking and my hands were dirty and I couldn't answer your t- the text. And then you might receive evidence that that's true. So normally that would settle the that that reassurance those facts would settle that anxiety caused by those obsessive thoughts in ocd that doesn't provide um the reassurance doesn't provide relief 
And I'll need to ask again and again and again, because that, that cycle where reassurance provides us with information that can shut off doubt and uncertainty isn't happening. And so the, the obsession continues to spiral and continues to cycle. So what is this fixed worry circuit in the brain? So the, the neuroanatomy, uh, neurophysiology of OCD involves four brain areas. So there's a circuit that is overactive in the brain. So this is important to know. And I tell this to my patients a lot. When our brain is spinning on a hamster wheel, right? This could be like ADHD, anxiety, OCD, that experience of our, of our thoughts just going haywire. And we're just like, our brain is just super, super active. That's actually a brain that lacks energy. We'll talk more about that when we talk about the B vitamins, but basically our brain, a lot of its metabolic energy is dedicated to inhibition, turning off stuff, saying, don't think about that. Don't worry about that. That's cool. We can, uh, we, so for example, I'm not, you know, feeling the vibration of the wall behind me. It's irrelevant. I'm focusing on delivering this, this podcast and giving you information about OCD. So a huge amount of the input from my environment is being received by my brain, but my brain is not sending it up to my conscious awareness, not sending me that information. It's turning off that perception because, and allowing me to focus and to, and to perform certain behaviors and certain tasks, right? Like, like delivering this podcast. Now, when the brain is on this hamster wheel, intrusive thoughts, tons of thinking, that's actually a brain, it, it is overactive as a brain that lacks energy and the, the brain centers are, are hot and there isn't enough energy or there isn't enough um, um, metabolism in other brain areas to turn off that wheel. So there's a wheel involving these four brain areas um, and the, the four areas are the caudate nucleus which is located in the basal ganglia or striatum, the orbital cortex, the thalamus, which is more of, the, of a relay center, um, but it's also overactive, and the cingulate gyrus. So in OCD, the metabolic activity of the orbital cortex increases and it locks together with activity in the caudate nucleus the thalamus and the cingulate gyrus. So that it's just this like vicious cycle spiral that's running out of control. And somebody with OCD is experiencing that. Perhaps that's the only thing in their awareness is like all of this, um, is this, um, this experience of just these obsessions, worrying and running. Now it's also important to say that someone with OCD does have awareness and insight. So you may not feel like you can control this experience, of what's happening in the brain, but you're aware that it is happening. And this contrasts to psychosis in which the person often lacks insight and may be performing certain behaviors or having certain thoughts that they assume are part of reality. Now in OCD, the, the distinction between the OCD and reality can be quite blurred because it's so intense and it's so um, upfront center in experience. But there is this, this, um, this separation. And so part of the process of healing, part of the process of behavior therapy is to strengthen 
So if like 80% of the brain or of you, let's say if your experience is the OCD, and then there's like 20%, that's this other part of you that's watching the OCD. We're trying to expand that other part, which we call the impartial witness. Um, so back to the brain. So the striatum or the basal ganglia, this is uh, the, the part of the brain that's inactive in Parkinson's. So this is a uh, part of the brain that's laced with dopaminergic dopaminergic neurons. And so, and it's, and so the basal ganglia in Parkinson's is, is not functioning. And that's why the person can't initiate um, or perform certain movements. The caudate nucleus, you can think of as like a gear shift in a car. It's the automatic transmission for your thoughts. And for the thinking part of the brain and the putamen is for the body movement. So putamen is more out of whack with Parkinson's disease. So you think of the, the basal ganglia as this automatic control center. It's active when you're doing rote work. So when you're signing 40 checks, the first check, you may be engaging your prefrontal cortex. The basal ganglia is located in deeper brain center. You might be engaging your prefrontal cortex, your more conscious brain when you're signing the first two checks, maybe even not. And after, you know, by check three to number 40, you're going to be engaging the striatum almost exclusively. So the basal ganglia striatum almost exclusively as your hand is just going through the motions and your brain, you're not consciously thinking about it. So a good example of this is like a concert pianist. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Shine. It's about um, a man that uh, he learns the Rachmaninoff, like the hardest piano piece on earth. And there's a quote from Shine that says, your hands must form the unbreakable habit of playing the notes so that you can forget all about them. And this is a classic example of, of you know, the, this, um, the, uh, the main characters, um, piano teacher or his coach or whatever, who's explained to him how, honestly, how the striatum works, right? So the striatum takes over the work of the, the motions and of thought, and it, it lets the prefrontal cortex take the back seat. The person performing a piano piece who's memorized it is no longer thinking about it. And if you've ever had to mem like explain something that you just know now, it's very, very difficult. Like if you had to explain to a kid how to tie your shoe, it would take a lot of energy. You'd have to start engaging your prefrontal cortex versus when you're, if someone says, just show me how you tie your shoe, you just would do it. And you wouldn't think about it. You could tell somebody, you could be reciting multiplication tables while you're doing it. So the caudate nucleus, it's part of the striatum. This is what is overactive in OCD, or essentially it's like stuck. It's using a lot of energy. It coordinates thought and body movements during everyday activities, during routine and rote activities. In, in OCD, it doesn't shift gears properly. So messages from the front part of the brain get stuck there. And we're not able to sort of like, okay, I've thought about this enough. Let's just, just, just kind of shift into neutral and move on to do something else. This is the part of the brain that we are training in behavior therapy. So we're teaching the caudate nucleus and it can be taught to shift gears. So when the brain is stuck in gear, it's like that thought loop, like you must wash your hands again. You must wash your hands again. Your hands aren't clean, you know? 
so whereas somebody who gets stuff on their hands, goes and washes their hands, hands are clean, done, right? The claudate nucleus has shifted gears, move on to the next thing. In OCD, it's stuck and we can't move on to the next task. Now, this is this is what, so we think of like the brain is hot and cool, right? Hot means it's very metabolically active. It's like rrr, revving up. Cool means we've, we've shut down that area because it's done its job. It's shifted gears. So when implementing behavior therapy, we cool down the caudate nucleus. And this can be seen in PET scans. You know, those scans of the brain where it shows hot and cold areas. We see the, the, the caudate nucleus in the basal ganglia in the brains of people with OCD is very, very hot, especially when obsessions are running rampant, but cools down once they've implemented behavior therapy. And so this is the beautiful thing is that by implementing behavior therapy, we can change the way the brain works and how it responds to the thoughts and urges and, and, um, and how these neural pathways are formed. And we can create more smoothly functioning transmission so that over time the urges actually decrease. So the next section of the brain that's overactive is the orbital cortex. So this is the brain's error detection center and it's located directly over your eye sockets and it's where thought and emotion combine and it it gives you the signal that something is wrong or something is right. So it's both. It's approach or avoid. This is where problem solving takes place. This is how you know you've solved a problem or haven't solved a problem. So for example, I'll highlight how it works with this experiment. So monkeys are given this um, activity to do where when a color flashes on a screen, like red, for example, that they get some juice and monkeys love juice. Monkeys love juice. They hate salt. You need to know that for they hate salt water. They love juice. Um, so when the color red flashes on a screen, it means juice is coming. And so the monkeys, you know, they drink juice and they start to get excited when they see the color red. This is classic um, Pavlovian conditioning. Um, what's it called? Um, not operational, operant conditioning, but classical conditioning. So the, the monkeys, when they see the color red, when they get the juice, their orbital cortex fires approach something good is happening you solved a problem or something something's going to lead to something good now this is interesting though because when the red flashes and the monkeys their their orbital cortex fires up they see the red they think it's juice and uh-oh it's salt water the monkeys orbital cortex fires even more okay so when you expect something good to happen, such as receiving juice, and instead you get something you don't want or something bad, like salt water, the orbital cortex fires more intensely. So it fires when you get juice, it fires when you get salt water, <laughs> but when you think you're going to get juice and you end up getting salt water, that's when the orbital, front, the orbital cortex fires like mad, okay? When something unexpectedly bad happens. So this is like, we talk about the brain's negative bias and this is why we are, this is why we always like trying to work against this negative bias so that we're not constantly um, catastrophizing things. It's painful, right? This experience, we don't like it, but it's, it's absolutely essential for our evolution. We're supposed to learn and then, and, and to avoid bad things so that we don't die in the wild ultimately. So ultimately, the orbital cortex fires when we've made an error. 
an error of judgment or a physical error. It can recognize right and wrong answers. And essentially it's our error detection system. But if we get an answer wrong, it fires in long, intense bursts. And it's involved in frustration, right? Something is wrong and something needs to be corrected with a certain behavior. And so what happens in OCD is that this air detection center, the orbital cortex is inappropriately activated. We have these persistent intrusive thoughts and sensations that something is amiss or wrong. And we experience a gut level sense of dread or error or something is bad. So think of that, right? That's pretty classic for anxiety, waking up with a sense of dread and what's going, and then we immediately want to know like, what is wrong? Right. And so a lot of my patients with anxiety will say, you know, I'm just, I just feel dread. I just feel off. I don't know why I don't know what's wrong. So, you know, meditation can help us move brain activity to the, to the more lateral parts of the brain right? Because orbital cortex is more medial. It's more associated with the air detection. The lateral prefrontal cortex is a little bit more like, um, you know, helps us with, it's called the salience network, um, where it helps us, you know, experience more of our body sensations, execute functioning a little bit better and helps us feel a little bit more um, expansive versus the medial orbital cortex, right? The, the medial prefrontal cortex, the orbital cortex, which is associated with this like negativity. So what's happening though, is this error detection. So normally what happens is, so let's say the monkeys, they see red flash, they think they're going to get juice. They press the lever, they get salt water, bam, their orbital cortex starts firing like crazy. And they're, they're filled with this. Oh my God, we screwed up. Well, if the monkey can somehow figure out how to solve it. Like maybe they need to press the red lever twice. So they learn and then they get the juice that'll, that'll calm down. Right. In OCD, it doesn't calm down. doesn't matter what you do, right. We're trying to fix it. You're trying to solve the problem. You're trying to shut down the orbital cortex firing to tell you, okay, you, you did it. You did the right thing. You solved your error. Um, but it, it won't. Right. So driving over a speed bump, you think you've drove, you hit someone with your car and drove over someone, you go back and check, you see it was a speed bump that doesn't shut off the orbital cortex. And so the feeling is amplified by the caudate nucleus. That's our gear shift. Caudate nucleus isn't able to shift the orbital cortex out of gear. And the, um, and so the, the orbital cortex is stuck in this on position that something is wrong. Feelings can't turn off, even if a behavior is performed that is supposed to correct the problem. And so there's a desperate attempt to make that feeling go away. And this can lead to these chronic compulsions. And that only strengthens the feeling even more. Now we have the cingulate gyrus. And so this is like our gut and heart control centers of the brain. It's the deepest part of the cortex. So the cortex is the part of the brain that makes us human, like our, our prefrontal, our cerebral cortex. Um, and so at the, at the deepest level, typically like the deeper in the brain or the, the more, like the lower centers are, are more primitive centers, like our, our older brain parts and the, and the cortex is, um, is newer. And so the cingulate gyrus is sort of like an older part of the cortex, a deeper part of the cortex. It activates this feeling that something terrible is going to happen if you don't do something. 
And so damage to the caudate nucleus or the striatum in general, the basal ganglia in general, it causes this a behavior to be performed over and over again, even if it is not useful and even when it's detrimental. And in OCD, the, like we said, the orbital cortex is firing inappropriately. It gives you the sense of something being wrong. The cingulate gyrus is also firing and it's tightly linked to that orbital cortex error detection um, system. So something terrible is going to happen if you don't perform some sort of compulsion and the caudate nucleus is locked in gear, keeping that whole thing spiraling. The fourth brain area is the thalamus. It's sort of the relay center. So it's involved, but it's not specifically. It's sort of, it's like, yes, keep going. Yes. It's like shouting to, to keep all these centers active. So imagine that, right? Like in your brain, you, see, you might experience it, like just to, to come up with an example of an obsession. Someone might say like, I'm contaminated. Everything's dirty. I've got to scrub my hands. Right. So th that feeling of something is dirty is just is blaring. This oral cortex is just blaring at the person. Something's dirty. You're dirty. You're dirty. You're dirty. You're dirty. Something's wrong. You've done something wrong. The cingulate gyrus is reinforcing that. It's telling you something terrible is going to happen. It's, you know, and you can, you can use your mind to justify what terrible might happen. I'll get sick. I'll die. I'll contaminate everyone. And you've got to wash your hands to, to clear this and get rid of it. And now there's this loop happening between the orbital cortex and the cingulate gyrus. And it's going through the caudate nucleus, which is reinforcing and causing these behaviors. And these behaviors are happening kind of on autopilot. And, and it's also not, this caudate nucleus is not allowing that circuit to shift. So we can actually say like, okay, I've washed my hands enough. Probably not going to contaminate anyone. You know, there's no lethal you know, parasite on me that didn't, wasn't removed in the first washing, it'll all be good. There's no force to turn that off. And because the, the gear shift is stuck. And so this is what is reinforcing that entire cycle of obsession, anxiety, compulsion, relief, and then obsession. So in, um, in behavior therapy, everything can start to work more freely and actually respond to reality into the environment. And so when we change behaviors, we can start to create a new groove. We can start to cool down those brain centers, allow them to start working normally again. And then we can start to experience relief from OCD symptoms. And this is called neuroplasticity. It's changing the way your brain works via your behavior. So cognitive behavior therapy, ultimately. So the gold standard um, for therapy for OCD is called exposure response and prevention. And it's a form of, of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy is the gold standard for depression and anxiety. Um, so exposure response and prevention, ERP, is the gold standard for OCD. So you've heard maybe of like exposure therapy. If you're afraid of snakes, you start off by, you create like a, a hierarchy of fears. So it's like, what are you the most scared of? Like sitting with a snake wrapped around your neck or looking at a picture of a snake, right? So you start with the picture of a snake um, and you sit in front of that picture experiencing anxiety until that anxiety cools off, usually about 45 minutes. Then you, okay, then you see like maybe a more realistic picture of a snake. Then maybe you watch a video of a snake. Then maybe you go um, look at snakes from far away. Maybe you go closer. Maybe you see them in a cage. Maybe you end up touching with one finger, all that stuff. So you, you create this hierarchy where you're 
slowly exposing yourself to more, more and more stimuli surrounding the fear and thereby cooling off that fear that's associated with the thing um, because your brain is learning ultimately that nothing bad happens when the thing is there. And so it's very, very powerful therapy and very effective, but extremely distressing. So in ERP, what how it works is the person with OCD is forced to confront these things that cause OCD to flare up, but is just told not to do the resulting compulsion. So for example, go dirty your hands, don't wash them. And so you can imagine that that would be very anxiety provoking. Um, and so this has been this has been the therapy for a couple of decades, and it requires it involves system, systematic exposure to stimuli that bring on OCD symptoms. So such as having like the person with contamination OCD touch a toilet seat or other objects they fear contaminated, and the therapist then enforces extended periods during which the person agrees not to respond with compulsive behaviors. So this therapy can cause immense anxiety. There, the it's very important to work with someone who is good at managing the window of tolerance, making sure that the person stays within a window of tolerance. It requires a lot of assistance from a trained therapist to manage the anxiety and distress. So very likely there are tools that are implemented first to teach somebody how to self-regulate and then to co-regulate with a the therapist. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very effective. The, the anxiety often lessens in the face of exposure and thereby the, the idea is that the person gains control of their OCD symptoms. Now, many of my patients with OCD have mentioned this type of therapy to them. They've heard of it before and they're like, I don't, I'm too afraid to. So even the idea of it is anxiety provoking. Nobody wants to feel anxiety. And so there is another type of behavior therapy we'll talk about, which is um, developed by Jeffrey Schwartz. And he writes about it in his book, Brain Lock. He calls it the four steps. Um, and he calls it, yeah, cognitive biobehavioral therapy. And he has shown that it, it does unlock that brain circuit, the fixed worry circuit. And it does help to improve neuroplasticity and to change the way the brain works. And so ERP is one way to do it, but it's not the only way, although it is the gold standard. So that's the behavior therapy is, is ERP. And then we'll talk about um, the four steps in a second. But the other gold standard therapy is medication. And medication involves selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. There are a couple that are approved for OCD. So Zoloft, sertraline and Prozac, fluoxetine are the two that are approved. Um, and uh, Paxil and um, flavoxamine, and citalopram are used as off-label. Um, so they're still SSRIs, but they're used more off-label. They're approved for depression anxiety. And um, so the problem is, you know, according to Jeffrey Schwartz, and so this fixed worry circuit, one of the things that they've identified is that there are two neurotransmitters that are most likely involved. So dopamine is, is probably involved, but the circuit seems to lack serotonin. Now, this is a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Is it is the serotonin lacking because somebody just doesn't make serotonin? Possibly. There could be biological underpinnings to it. And so we'll talk about that because it doesn't have to be SSRI therapy necessarily. But there's also another neurotransmitter, glutamate, that is overactive. So glutamate is our excitatory. It's the main excitatory um, 
neurotransmitter. So it turns things on, heats stuff up. And it's also, um, it's excitotoxic, which means that too much glutamate creates uh, neuronal damage and neuronal um, toxicity. And so glutamate, I always think of as associated with that hamster wheel, right? Like we don't have enough GABA or um, glut, you know, or um, antagonists to shut off uh, the hamster wheel. So we've got something that's sending, that's that's keeping things going. And there's not, so it's too much glutamate, not enough GABA, or, or um, too much glutinate, glutamate, not enough serotonin that's involved in um, keeping that fixed worry circuit going. But when we're looking like, you know, neurochemically is the condition of OCD we've can be located in the cognition. So at the level of brain circuits, and there are some abnormalities that are located at the level of neurochemistry because that's associated with the brain circuits, right? So there's not enough serotonin, there's too much glutamate. Um, and you can also look at the, you know, the level of, um, analysis shows up in behaviors, but what we actually want to do is change the brain circuits. Cause that's where we've located the problem to be. So that's probably the level. So we're thinking like, how can we change brain circuits? What's the best way is to use neuroplasticity to our favor to shift these brain circuits by engaging different behaviors. We can also support the, the biochemistry at the same time. But I think that behavior therapy is probably the main thing that somebody with OCD wants to focus on to experience the most shift in their symptoms and the most healing. Um, so ERP is different from, um, I just want to say this other thing, ERP is different from progressive mindfulness, um, which uh, allows OCD symptoms to, to truly understand what is happening to them so they don't have to react to the symptoms. So it's going after the beast itself or not giving the enemy any ammunition, right? So it's, Progressive mindfulness is looking at let's not feed the obsessions and compulsions at all versus trying to tolerate the anxiety. It's a little bit different. Okay. Back to medications. So um, the medication, the problem with them is that they're, they're more passive, right? So somebody takes a medication and we hope that the brain circuit will calm down and it often does. Um, but Oh, you know, OCD is very treatment resistant. And when the only therapy recommended is medication, there's not, um, there, it isn't too effective. So an active component needs to be added. And this goes for, you know, using nutrition, using supplementation there, there should be an active component as well. And this active component involves the realization that this is just OCD. And we'll talk about these steps and, and then what happens is once the brain starts to change, medication dose can be lowered, but medication dose is, you know, might be seen as like what Jeffrey Schwartz, he calls it the water wings, right? So in time, you can go in a lower dose. It helps you stay afloat as you're learning how to swim. And, uh, and you know, in, in somebody who is resistant to or only experienced side effects because SSRI medication usually has a plethora of side effects. Um, it can be very effectively treated without drugs via behavior therapy. And there can also be a combination of behavior therapy and new like natural um, remedies to support serotonin pathways, support um, brain function, help to disengage those circuits from a biochemical angle. Um, but one of the things that's important to know is that we can change our brain chemistry with our behavior. So we can go 
um, bottom up versus top down as well. So it's not me, it's my OCD. It's the title of this podcast. So I want to spend the next few minutes and probably the bulk of this podcast talking about brain lock. So there's a book called um, You Are Not Your Brain. And this is by Jeffrey Schwartz. And then he's got another book called Brain Lock that talks about the four steps. So, so you know, there, these four steps are put in place to help rewire the circuits that cause OCD. There's scientific evidence that this behavior therapy, he calls it cognitive biobehavioral therapy, alone actually causes chemical changes in the brain. It increases self-control and helps enhance self-command and heightened self-esteem. And it essentially is training the mind, right? So to an, like we mentioned earlier, to an untrained mind, the anxiety resulting from the obsessions creates an overwhelming need to perform a compulsion. And with a properly trained mind, that that overwhelm isn't there. And the need to do the compulsion, there's a little bit of space between the need for the compulsion and the obsession. And we start to strengthen. That space is created by a stronger, looser caudate nucleus that can gear shift away from that obsessive thought and move on to something else. The four steps are relabel, reattribute, refocus, and revalue. So relabel is answering the question, what is bothering me? And the answer to that is, is, you know, it's not that I think my hands are dirty. It's to zoom out and to use something called the impartial spectator and to answer that question with OCD symptoms are bothering me. And so that we call this externalization actually in narrative therapy. So it's very similar. This is used, this, this tactic titled different things is used in many types of, um, of therapy where we start to externalize the problem. And by externalizing it, we can, we can create space from it and look at it a little bit differently. So OCD is what's bothering me, deceptive brain messages. So relabeling requires conscious effort at first, right? So what needs to happen is that one tells themselves that some that something is an obsession or a compulsion. So titling it that, relabeling it, giving it a name. You might call it like Harry. Oh, here's Harry again, telling me my hands are dirty, whatever it is. Um, but the more that relabeling happens, the more the process becomes automatic, right? The more the the caudate nucleus takes control and the more easy and the easier it becomes and the impartial spectator and the wise advocate becomes stronger. And then what happens is the person will, will start to frame their experience is I'm having a compulsive urge. The compulsion is bothering me. The obsessive thought is hounding me versus engaging with the content of the thought. Like I'm having an urge to wash my hands, you know, so it helps separate what's real versus what isn't. So the impartial spectator is what is involved in this process and in all four steps in general. The impartial spectator is this person within. You know, in uh, Buddhism, we might call it the witness and it shows up in mindfulness. 
it's this feeling, this realization that you are not your thoughts. So if you're not your thoughts and you can watch your thoughts, then what is watching your thoughts? Well, let's call it the impartial spectator. So it's this ability to distance yourself from your brain, to stand outside of yourself and to read your own mind. So it it is essentially a process of mindful awareness. It's not simply observing your thoughts, but evaluating the choices and actions that arise from them. So letting the thoughts in with an open mind, assessing them and deciding what to do about them versus simply reacting mindlessly and automatically. So it's this space that's formed. And so in summary, the impartial spectator is the capacity to stand outside of yourself and watch yourself in action. Some people like to So impartial spectator sort of um, calls to mind like a neutral body and neutral stance. And so some people like to think of it as the wise advocate instead, right? So it's another way of viewing the impartial spectator, Um, but it's something that you can literally talk to and engage with almost in an inner dialogue. And so you can think of the, this wise advocate as like a loving guide that generally cares for you, is on your side, sees the big picture, knows the problem is in your brain and not you, continues to remind you these deceptive brain messages are not you, it's just the OCD. This wise advocate guides and supports you in making rational decisions based on what your long-term um, goals are and your long-term best interests. And this, it's, it's got this message for you that your whole identity is not tied up in this, that your brain is just playing cruel tricks on you. In self-compassion, mindful self-compassion, we work with this wise advocate. We don't necessarily call it that, but we say like right from the perspective of your higher self, um, and it, it's taking on this higher perspective, maybe God, um, a loving, the loving mother, Earth Gaia. So this entity, this loving, wholesome beautiful entity that that enshrouds you, loves you, and, and holds you with this loving compassion, right? So it's a little bit of a different take from the impartial spectator, which is just the part of you that can watch your own mind, the witness that observes the mind. So both of these things are kind of rolled into one. Um, there is, so in this rela- relabeling step is an activity that um, someone might try. You probably want to do this with the help of a therapist or a guide because it can be um, anxiety aggravating, but it comes from the work of Dr. Paul Selkovskis and Dr. Isaac Marks. And a couple patients in Jeffrey Schwartz's book tried this. And so it involves, so you get a tape recorder and you record the obsession, repeating the thought over and over, and then listening to it repeatedly perhaps 45 minutes at a time. When we actually hear our voice, it becomes a lot easier to be the impartial spectator because it frees up your brain from having the thought to just now witnessing the thought voiced by you. So this, the patient that implemented this, and so you listen to the, the loop for 45 minutes at a time, it'll probably provoke some anxiety So it'll, you know, you kind of want it to be like a five or six on a 10 point scale, and you don't really want it to be like 10 out of 10. And eventually the anxiety goes down to zero, and then you come up with a new obsession that that re-triggers it. And so when that anxiety goes down to zero, now you can imagine when that obsessive thought comes up in your brain, it's, it's not triggering any anxiety. And so in this way, you're desensitizing yourself to the thought by invoking and strengthening this impartial witness. 
So this one patient, he took this a step further and he said that um, what he actually did was he'd write down um, his obsession and then he'd write down scenarios in which this, the obsession came true. So we'd take it a step further. We do this a lot with CBT or with like journaling for anxiety. Like I'll say like, okay, so if you're worried that you'll lose your job, then imagine, okay, what's the worst case scenario? You never find another job again. You're completely homeless. You're lying on the street, dirty in the middle of winter. And you have the person write out like their worst case scenario. Um, and, it, you know, often it's ridiculous, right? Like one of my patients, he said, like, I know that if I lost my job, I would probably just find a new job. I have savings, whatever. Like the reality is much less anxiety provoking than my worst case scenario that, I, that is not even spoken in my mind. And so this patient in Jeffrey Schwartz's book recommends actually writing it out. So if you have a scrupulous and religious obsessions, let, let God strike you dead and throw you in the hellfires. You know, um, if you're obsessed about committing a crime, have the police arrest you, take you to jail, imagine the trial. And so he says, the important thing is to make the obsession look as ridiculous as possible. And, and so to add that to the, to the thought loop so that, you're pairing this ridiculousness with the fear and anxiety provoking obsession. And then ultimately what the, what you're doing is desensitizing the brain. Um, and uh, so this can, can be helpful for people who, you know, even if you don't have OCD and you just have um, chronic worries and obsessions, this could be really helpful to neutralize those obsessions. Um, now, you know, in general, it is a good idea to, to write down, um, your thoughts in a journal and record your progress. Because what often happens with all types of anxiety, right? And OCD is, it involves anxiety. So it is in a sense, a type of anxiety with all types of anxiety. We expect that we'll, when we're, when we're overcoming the anxiety, we'll experience like uh, elation and a euphoria. And ultimately, like that's not true. What happens with anxieties when people heal from anxiety is they just, it just stops being an awareness. So you'll ask the person, oh, you know, remember like you were so scared to speak out in a meeting, you get heart palpitations every time, you know, you read an email, there was an e a meeting coming up and they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't care at all. I just speak up in meetings. Like it doesn't, it doesn't trigger anything in my body. And so it's important to record your progress because we, we move on to the next thing, right? Anxiety takes up space in our bodies and, um, and there's always something to be anxious about because we live in a, in a, in a dangerous world, you know, with real dangers and real things that could go wrong. And so um, we want to take, take note of our progress. And then we also want to know what our progress is like so that we know what works when going through behavior therapy or when engaging in a process. And even as simple as like lifestyle routines, right? Like taking note of, oh, you know, I had a really terrible sleep last night and my obsessions were running rampant and being able to, you know, realistically look at your progress, see what factors tie into to progressing or, or plateauing. And also to look at it with, with self-compassion, like, you know, Oh, I feel like I've taken two steps back, but really I just had a terrible night's sleep. And once I get my sleep back on track, I'll probably feel, I'll probably experience the results of all this work I'm doing that much more. So here's a quote from the book brain lock. Jeffrey Schwartz says the power of the relabel step is something that should never be underestimated. So remember, this is just step one. 
and all it involves in really is all it involves is just saying like, this is OCD happening, like relabeling, like OCD is here, you know? So the power of this relabel step should never be underestimated. It's the difference between knowing what's real and living in fear in the shadows. When you relabel, you make mental notes and remind yourself, that's just OCD. I don't have to listen to that. And a very powerful process is initiated. A change in the value and meaning that you give the unpleasant, obsessive thought or urge begins. The power of the impartial spectator is called into play, which profoundly changes the nature of the interaction between you and your internal opponent. Now the battlefield is being fought on your home, home turf, reality, not on the playing field of your opponent, who relies solely on deception and illusion. Always remember that a firm grasp of reality is your greatest ally in the fight against OCD, because in the end, fear and false messages are OCD's only weapons. If you reattribute those fears to their true causes, as you've trained yourself to do, and refocus on a wholesome behavior for at least 15 minutes, you may not win every battle, but in the end, you'll win the war. With the power of your mind, you will change the brain. Where there was once brain lock, a freer and more smoothly running thought process is now in place. So step two is reattribute. Reattribute answers the question, why won't these thoughts go away, right? So relabel is like, why am I having these thoughts? OCD. So reattribute, why won't the thoughts go away? So this step is put into place to remind you that that gut level anxiety, which is caused by the cingulate gyrus over firing, is due to your brain, a condition called OCD, and it doesn't mean something is actually wrong. So the, the answer is this compulsive urge keeps bothering me because I have a condition called OCD. My obsessions and compulsions are coming from an imbalance in my brain. It's not me, it's my OCD. Understand that the thoughts and urges are merely mental no noise, false signals being sent from your brain. OCD may mimic the feelings of reality, but reality never mimics the feelings of OCD. If it feels like it might be OCD, it is OCD. If it were reality, it wouldn't feel like it might be OCD. So that's from brain lock as well. Because um, some people will say like, well, how do I know? Like, I, I'm getting this obsession that my partner might be cheating on me. What if they are? What if I have reason? It's like, well, you know, if you have... Um, you know, if it feels like it might be OCD, it is OCD. So the reattribute step is where you start to think about those brain circuits. So one patient just wrote in a notebook, caudate nucleus. <laughs> and if you want the spelling, check out the, the show notes. Um, he just wrote caudate nucleus in his, uh, in his notebook and just running. Okay. This, oh, wow. My orbital frontal cortex is firing. My, you know, it, my orbital co frontal cortex is telling me that I made an error. My, my cingulate gyrus is telling me that I should feel bad and dread the result of this error, the impending doom that's about to, the catastrophe that's going to result. And the, the cingulate gyrus is telling me that I need to perform an action in order to get a result. And my caudate nucleus is telling me is, is stuck in gear and it's creating this loop that I'm experiencing. And that's all that's happening. And so, you know, on the ground, it seems like I want to wash my hands. It seems like I feel like I'm contaminated. It seems like I got to get this thing just right. But 
what's actually happening is my brain circuit is overfiring. This brain circuit, this fixed worry circuit is overfiring and it's not reality. I didn't make a mistake. There's no error. It's nothing that needs to be done. That's all you need to say. So, so this is the, this is the thought, right? So again, this is not going to happen automatically. This is something just even having that impartial spectator chime in a little bit, you know, it's not going to stop the thought loop, but it's going to over time, over months, provide a little bit of space to do the next step. Number three, which is refocus. So refocusing is actually, it's like flexing the muscle of the caudate nucleus. It's not going to be easy at first. And so it's not meant to be like, just think about something else. It's to take that gear shift and try to jam it free. Okay. It's not going to be easy. You might not be able to do it. You might have to call on some people to like flex that muscle for you. I call this step too. Like with my friend, we call it outsourcing the prefrontal cortex where you get like, you know, a friend to like help you. Like, and, and this is where I think nutrition comes in really strongly because we want to be providing the brain with energy so that it can gear shift. So it's this idea, like you go to the gym and you want to lift 150 pounds. Like you, I don't even know if that's a lot. Like you want to bench press 150 pounds and uh, you start with like 20, you know, and you make sure that you're fueling properly and that you're drinking water and that you're going to sleep. So this is the whole thing. This is the muscle part. So the refocus step involves focusing on a healthy behavior in order to unlock the brain and re-engage it in something else to shift the caudate nucleus, activate the prefrontal cortex. Because remember, the caudate nucleus is involved in automatic behaviors that we don't need to think about. So we want to get that engaged in like concert piano playing, you know? And you do that in other, you know, rather than giving in to unpleasant urges. So over time, the less attention you pay to the unpleasant sensations and actions, the weaker the brain circuits associated with them become. This is the opposite of what the actual OCD reinforces. So there's sort of like a mindful refocusing component where you could actually refocus by engaging in something that's sort of associated with the obsession. So if you're upset about dirt, refocus on gardening, that could be a possibility, but you're basically just finding a wholesome behavior that you, that you want to do. And so it might help to make a list and to also keep track of what, uh, what wholesome behavior, I hope I said wholesome and not unwholesome, what wholesome behavior actually, um, helped the most, right? Because some are going to be stickier than others. Like going to do something that's kind of boring and difficult to uh, motivate yourself to engage in is going to be tough. But like putting your shoes on to go take a walk or playing with your dog or reading like a trashy novel might be a little bit easier to do because you get a bit of a dopamine hit from them. So you probably, you want to find kind of like rewarding um, different activities, like getting up to clean maybe, you know? So what you want to do is refuse to take the obsession and compulsions at face value, work around them by focusing on another behavior that is useful or positive. So essentially engaging that caudate nucleus and shifting gears. So um, this is sort of like responding to those false signals in a new and constructive way. 
refocusing attention on more constructive behavior to the best of your ability at that moment. And this is literally the hardest part, as you can imagine, a behavior therapy, because this is where the real muscle comes in. But this is where all the brain chemistry takes place. Um, and so what Schwartz says is, it's not how you feel, but what you do that counts. So, and he uses an example in his book of this patient, Joanne. And so she was having these really dark brooding thoughts and, you know, she was sort of implementing these steps over and over again. And she's, she said that she actually had this experience at one point months into therapy of her brain actually coming unstuck. So she actually had that sensation, hamster wheel, hamster wheel, hamster wheel, hamster wheel, you know, and then all of a sudden it just kind of like disengaged and maybe it didn't last very long. Maybe it would disengage and it was like, relief. And then back to hamster wheel, hamster wheel, hamster wheel, hamster wheel. But to have that experience of, oh my gosh, that's what they're talking about was the, was this revelation for her. She said that before that she had no concept of how that felt or what that meant. And she started just by refocusing on something else. And she just managed to do it for a couple of minutes, but she started to gain some sense of control of her mind. Like, oh my gosh, I don't have to just like be clinging to this hamster wheel for dear life while my mind just assaults me with urges and thoughts and images I actually have some agency over this. And it's really hard, but I'm not a victim to my mind. I'm not at the mercy of my mind. Um, so the goal is not to control the thoughts and to like, you know, like, or make them go away. They might still be there, but it's, to make this significant functional progress by doing behavior therapy. It takes more effort at the beginning, but like lifting weights, the prefrontal cortex gets stronger and the caudate nucleus starts to become consciously unstuck. And so uh, one of the things that Jeffrey Schwartz um, recommends is the 15 minute rule. So you might set a timer in your phone for 15 minutes and just go do something wholesome and enjoyable, trying to stave off the compulsion. After 15 minutes, take mental notes of how your symptoms have changed and try to refocus for another 15 minutes if you can. And so that that might look like you set your timer for 15 minutes and you go journal or you go walk or you go jump around or you read a book or whatever it is. Um, and then at, when the timer goes off, you might be like, oh my God, that was so much work. Maybe you didn't make it, but timer goes off. And how do I feel? Do I feel like the obsessions have decreased? increased or are they the same? And you just, you take note and maybe you end up performing the compulsion, but then the next time it, it arises, you try and do the 15 minute thing again. Um, and so he emphasizes in the book that this step is active. You can't be passive. This is a very active step. So relabeling, it brings everything. It, it brings in the possibility of even doing this. Reattributing allows you to start thinking about this as like a brain circuit that's out of whack and refocusing allows you to, this is the active step where you're like, I am taking control now or trying to really grab my, my wrap my fingers around this gear shift and try and yank it into a different gear. Um, the last step, number four is revalue. So this will take months for the process to become smooth and efficient, but what you'll learn is that the troublesome thoughts and urges are having little or no value. The actual content of these thoughts, the, the, that these obsessions do nothing for you. They're not, because really what the brain is trying to tell you is that these, this is super important, right? 
like you, you thought you'd get juice and you got a bunch of salt water. And if you don't do something quick, something horrible will happen. Your brain is trying to give you information, like, right. So it's giving you the sense that it's giving you valuable information. And what this process is, is to teach you is that there's no value in this information. It means nothing. And these obsessions and compulsions then have less of an impact on you. It's a little bit like when, you know, like when car alarms first came out, I remember when like everyone started having a car alarm, people would be like, oh my gosh, someone's car alarm's going off. And now when you, you can like work through a car alarm, it's like mildly annoying. It doesn't go away though, right? Like no one's ever like sweet, a car alarm or like totally able to ignore it. But when you hear a car alarm go off now, do you run and go look and see what it is? Not really. Like you kind of are like, ah, eh, someone hit someone's car by accident, you know? So much so, and maybe I shouldn't even say this, but one time I was at lifeguard training back in, I don't know, a couple decades ago, maybe. And um, and someone's car got stolen. The car alarm was going crazy because the security guard was like, well, car alarms always go off. So it became something that it was useless. And that's the goal is to make the car alarm in your brain, the orbital cortex mean nothing because you're able now to shift your attention using the caudate nucleus um, to, to other more important things. And so what you want is to come away with the conclusion, this is just a senseless obsession. It's a false message. I'm going to focus my attention on something else. And that automatic transition starts working. The caudate nucleus starts working again. And so this is another quote from the book. He says, the more clearly you see what OCD symptoms are, the more rapidly you can dismiss them as worth, worthless garbage that is not worth paying attention to. And so he kind of highlights this, like during the four steps, at first, the intrusive thought says, go wash your hands. And at first the person listened right away, which tended to make the brain lock worse, tighter and tighter. After training the four steps, the mental response is very different. The person says, I know what you are. You're just OCD, just an alarm system and my brain gone bad. Then the person goes and listens to Mozart or practices his golf swing, reflects on his options, exercises his will, makes a new choice, and does another behavior. And in this way, this patient changes how the brain functions. And so again, those steps are relabel, reattribute, refocus, and revalue. And we're ultimately saying this, it's not me, it's my OCD. I'm going to do something else. So check out that book, Brain Lock. It's very helpful, I think. Um, It's often cited when it comes to OCD. It's an alternative from exposure and response prevention and can be very helpful in understanding the nature of the condition. So we're moving on now to some naturopathic therapies. So James Greenblatt, Dr. James Greenblatt, he has something called the zebra method with, with two E's, Z. Z-E-E-B-R-A. Um, and he says, because zebras have different stripes and no two are alike. So he likes the acronym um, zebra. And the Z stands for zinc and other minerals. The E, exercise. The other E, EFAs, essential fatty acids, the omega-3s. B stands for B vitamins. R is restore the gut. And A is amino acids. And so the zebra method is for nurturing the brain and mind. And um, so there, like we mentioned earlier, there's a couple of, when we're looking at biochemistry, so we know about the circuit. And so that we, we, we fix with neuroplasticity with behavior therapy. 
the brain chemistry can help loosen that circuit a little bit to make the behavior therapy easier. So it can apply some water wings. So medication might be might possibly do that. I would argue from my perspective as a naturopathic doctor that when a nutrient is missing, I mean, sometimes that can be the whole thing. And so this is why we have you know, zinc as a common mainstay or nutrients that support serotonin synthesis are common mainstays in mental health therapies because we want to allow the brain to work as it needs to, right? Like we want to set a foundation for proper brain functioning. And this will allow behavior therapy to occur, but it may also lessen the symptoms. And to what degree it can lessen the symptoms probably is to the degree that those, those nutrient deficiencies are affecting the symptoms, right? So definitely a problem can exist biologically. I just find that in OCD, there definitely can be a biological component because biology obviously affects our brain and our brain circuits arise from biology, but it is a, a cognitive disorder. And so we also want to approach it cognitively if you're not getting results from the nutrients. So we have high glutamate, we have low serotonin, so people with OCD, they found to have higher glutamate levels than healthy controls. The, the, um, the fixed worry circuit is dampened and softened by serotonin. And there seems to be something off with serotonin signaling in the, in the brains of people with OCD. Um, and so that's why you know, SSRI therapy can improve behavior therapy by 80%, which is great because only about 20% of people, if they just use therapy, like the SSRIs alone, will get relief from their symptoms because they're uh, not also simultaneously focusing on behavior therapy. And so OC is very hard to treat with just biological means. So glutamate is present in virtually every neutron, uh, neuron, sorry, in the body. And elevated levels can cause excitotoxicity and neurotoxicity. And I think of that as like a brain fuzz, like a TV that's between channels, hamster wheel, just like people can get like ticks, like glutamate is associated with all of those compulsive disorders like trichotillomania, dermatillomania, Tourette's, there's seizures, migraines, there's this excitotoxicity in the brain with glutamate. There's glutamate associated with ADHD. So this like hamster wheel, this like agitation, this like, you know, kind of thing happening in your brain. Um, so what exactly, you know, Dr. Greenblatt asks like in his article on OCD, like what causes this glitch that leads to serotonin deficiency syndrome? And so there's, you know, he has like a number of factors, including genes, diet, stress, neurotoxins, inflammation, they could all be associated with it. Um, so we want to make sure we have the amino acids available to make serotonin. And that is dependent upon certain digestive enzymes, um, their activation, which we need stomach acid for. So our, our gut health is involved in that. And we also need to get enough from the diet. So the neurotransmitter that makes serotonin is L-tryptophan, okay? And that gets converted to 5-HTP and that gets converted to serotonin. And then we actually convert serotonin to melatonin, okay? So we need L-tryptophan. Now, L-tryptophan is found in like poultry, egg yolks. It's more abundant in animal foods, but it, it can exist in plant foods. Like it's in pumpkin seeds. Um, so you need tryptophan for serotonin production. You need it in your diet. 
It's an essential amino acid. So it means it's, it's not synthesized by your body. But you also need cofactors. So what those cofactors do is help the tryptophan change into 5-HTP, help the 5-HTP change into serotonin. So that means we need vi vitamin B3, we need folate, active folate, we need B6, we need zinc, we need magnesium. And, um, and a lot of us are missing that. So folate, I, I, there is a podcast episode with Christina Carew on folate methylation. And so she says like folate and the other B vitamins are involved in giving the brain energy. So it helps to make neurotransmitters and it helps to, um, to sort of get our, stop the hamster wheel shut off those impulses, the orbifrontal cortex freaking out, the cingulate gyrus freaking out. It shuts those areas off. It gives strength to the caudate nucleus to move, to, to shut off, to shift gears. So a lot of people have a deficiency or rather efficiently, they have a mutation in an enzyme called MTHFR, which looks funny when you see it written down, MTHFR. Um, looks like a swear without vowels. And so MTGFR, uh, it converts folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate, and it converts, converts it into folate. So folic acid comes at us through synthetic multivitamins, crappy multivitamins, and grains. It's added to rice. It's added to wheat. And uh, you know, 60% of people have a mutation in MTHFR and can't convert that folic acid into folate. MTHFR is associated with different health conditions like depression, OCD, other mental health conditions, with thyroid conditions, with um, issues with the liver, liver function, metabolic issues, with chronic migraines. So I see a lot of people who I suspect have MTHFR deficiency. I try to make sure that everyone is getting full active folate. You get folate from liver and you can get folate from leafy greens. Um, I'm a big fan of liver because it's also going to get you the zinc and the B vitamins as well. But um, yeah, so folate helps us get our off that wheel. And um. So, you know, the, the B vitamins as well, like vitamin B6 is also important for making serotonin. Um, B6 is depleted with um, oral contraceptives. So is magnesium, which is also needed for serotonin synthesis. Magnesium is a, a very classic and chronic deficiency. Zinc is a common deficiency. It's, it's, um, its absorption is impaired when it comes from plant foods. It's in meat and animal um, products, and it's highest in oysters. So all of these nutrients as you know, people very uh, frequently can be deficient in, and that can be significant. So if you add some of these nutrients, it can help to support serotonin synthesis. Even 5-HTP could be a therapy um, to recommend to, to try and increase serotonin. It can be an alternative to SSRIs. So something like 200 to 400 milligrams a day, you want to work with an ND to help you to take this because there are some downsides to 5-HTP supplementation, um, but also the cofactors, making sure that um, you're getting B3, which is, which is niacin, you're getting B6, you're getting zinc, and you're getting folate, and you're getting magnesium. Um, 
And you're either getting that from diet, from an adequately stocked diet, but most likely most patients I see need to restore deficiencies. And so we're looking at supplementation with an active B-complex, active zinc, and um, and a a good quality magnesium. And so a study showed that um, 50 milligrams of 5-HTP was equal to Prozac. So 5-HTP can be quite effective. If somebody is, is you know unwilling or uncomfortable with SSRI medication or has tried it, didn't like the side effects. Um, now, sometimes I recommend 5-HTP, but I find that there are other things that are useful as well. Um, now, there's also an Ocetol. So not something I prescribe too often because the dose required is so high, something like 12 to 18 grams, but an Ocetol is useful. It's a signaling molecule. It's used in PCOS to sensitize the ovaries to insulin. It can support ovulation. That's where I use it the most. You only need four grams for that purpose. And other than that, I don't prescribe inositol too much for mental health conditions because 12 grams of inositol is three heaping scoops. And I just find it's, it's a lot. And I have other options that I, that I prefer, but, um, no side effects are reported with with inositol typically, and and there is like modest improvement. Um, there can be some GI side effects, so gastrointestinal side effects like bloating and nausea, and some people need it titrated up slowly. You know, twelve grams per day or more is the dose. Um, but it has been studied for SSRI resistant patients, and um, and it's unclear how it works. But it th- some studies speculate that it probably modulates serotonin and glutamate. Um, and it, it has something to do with neurotransmission. So it's not acting necessarily as a neurotransmitter itself, but it's modulating their effects. It's a secondary messenger, some messaging molecule, as I said, and it may enhance serotonin receptor sensitivity in the postsynaptic neuron <laughs> um, using something called signal transduction. So what it's doing is just supporting, like making the the cell that's receiving the serotonin more sensitive to serotonin. And, um, and so some, some signals that are expressed through behaviors with an supplementation are positive mood, relaxation, reduced obsessions, and um, people can take it with SSRIs as well. So you don't have to choose. And so perhaps it can help if you're resistant to the SSRIs, it can help attenuate and, and, um, Rather attenuate, it, it can actually help to um, increase the efficacy possibly, um, and uh, and yeah. So one of the one of the theories though is that inositol may be helping with the sensitivity of the neurotransmitters because maybe somebody doesn't need more serotonin; they just need to be more sensitive to serotonin. So in that case, inositol could be helpful. I prefer, however, NAC, N-acetylcysteine. I did an Instagram. Um, IGTV video on it recently. So NAC is a precursor to glutathione, which is the main antioxidant in the body. And that is helpful. So it's, it's helpful because it's supporting nerve, it's supporting very metabolically active cells like brain cells. So it's helping to clear out any free radicals from those brain cells, allowing them to work better in that sense, it's providing energy and supporting the mitochondria, the energy centers of the brain, but also the muscles liver. It's supportive for liver function too. It's been studied in many psychiatric conditions. And I think 
the most useful um, mechanism of action it has is that in order to make glutathione, it grabs glutamate. So it mops up excess glutamate in the brain. So it has the, this dual function of reducing oxidative stress and reducing glutamate. And so it's been studied for trichotillomania, gambling, and drug addiction. And the doses are, are quite high. I usually start people at a gram for like, um, you know, for liver function. You can also use it for PCOS. You can use it for endometriosis. It's used in a lot of hormonal health conditions. Um, it supports liver function. It's useful for fatty liver, for liver toxicity. It's mucolytic. So it's been used historically for chronic bronchitis, supports um, lung health. And, uh, but the dose for OCD is 2,400 to 3,600 milligrams per day. So 2.4 to 3.6 grams. So essentially we're tripling the dose. Um, and it usually comes in 600 milligram capsules. So you're taking six caps a day if you're up the higher end. Um, one of my friends with OCD, he said he took it and, it, you know, amino acids work pretty quickly, but he took it and um, he said, he's like, it was like this white noise just kind of cleared up in my brain. And I'm like, yeah, it's like mopping up your glutamate. It's kind of clearing up your um, neuronal signals and it's shutting up and maybe decreasing the volume on that fixed worry circuit, that orbital frontal cortex firing, the caudate nucleus, all of that, that we talked about earlier. So NAC and inositol, I see them a little bit um, interchangeably, although they do have different mechanisms of action. And I would highly suggest, then you have 5-HTP as well for the serotonin side of things, I would highly suggest rather than um, doing it yourself is talking to a naturopathic doctor to get on the right stuff. Make sure that you are on a plan that makes sense. So with every mental health condition, we're always going to think about inflammation and, and, and essential fatty acids like omega-3 is. So there actually isn't a ton of inflammation on, um, there isn't a ton of, um, of evidence on omega-3s for OCD, but we need omega-3s for brain function and brain function is going to benefit OCD. So by that way, when I'm working with someone, if I'm suggesting omega-3s, it's not because the person has OCD and that, that, that it's been studied for that. I'm looking at the person, the totality of the person, I'm assessing if their brain could use some omega-3s and, and could use some anti-inflammatory support. Um, and so in that way, that's where I would recommend omega-3s, but it has, they're not, there isn't, omega-3 evidence is stronger for um, psychosis and depression and schizophrenia and bipolar, more inflammatory brain conditions. Now there is a study, there's a 2014 study that showed that there was a connection between gut microbe um, dysfunction and OCD and the antibiotics and, and stress can precede the onset of a really bad OCD episode. So like going on a round of antibiotics can disrupt um, OCD. And so there may be a microbe in there that is affecting serotonin signaling or affecting glutamate signaling, or in some way, some other way is affecting OCD. Um, and so that's something that a naturopathic doctor would look at and assess. Like if somebody's coming in and they, they've been on a round of antibiotics, they have a lot of antibiotic use. So there's most likely a food sensitivity or something going on with their gut. Then we're addressing it at that level, but it's not a blanket recommendation to treat the gut unless we are, we have some evidence for that, or there's something in the case that's suggesting that. 
So of course, nutrition is important. And I think blood sugar regulation, something I always talk about with like everything I talk about is blood sugar is this major thing, but blood sugar, protein intake, healthy fats. And with OCD, it's no different, but the, the important thing about that is that we are trying to strengthen the cotton nucleus. We're trying to strengthen this energy in the brain. We're trying to strengthen the impartial spectator. And by that, we need constant brain energy. We don't want dips in blood glucose that are going to affect our brain. We want a very strong prefrontal cortex. We want strong decision-making willpower faculty. Think about how difficult that refocus step is to shift that gear. You need a lot of muscle power and that's blood sugar, right? And so blood sugar, like I have better episodes on this. I think I have an entire episode on blood sugar, if I'm not mistaken. Blood sugar is um, you know, you want, I mean, the, the best place to start with blood sugar regulation is to not eat just carbs in the morning to have a breakfast of protein. So grab a few eggs, crack them in a pan, have that for breakfast. Um, we want to give our brain energy to stop the hamster wheel of intrusive thoughts. And that way we can implement the behavior therapy. We can teach the brain to gear shift right? So we want to strengthen the prefrontal cortex is why I I call this strengthening the prefrontal cortex. Make sure the brain has adequate protein available to regulate brain circuits, control energy flow throughout the brain, and to create serotonin and GABA and NAC, like to create glutathione, to mop up glutamate, to regulate our, our brain function. And so that's absolutely certain. So when we're in, when we're summarizing, we're thinking, active B vitamins with active folate. Talk to your ND for that. Don't go on any random B vitamin because it most likely will have full. If you close your eyes and grab a B vitamin, it's going to have folic acid, which will just worsen the problem. So you want to go in an active B complex, um, zinc, magnesium, look at gut, look at whether the brain needs omega-3s, exercise. So engaging in more productive behaviors and routines that you can shift the cardiac nucleus and support brain energy through an anti-inflammatory diet, blood sugar regulation. For more on that, check out, I have a course called Feed Your Head and it goes into how to eat for your brain, how to eat for your brain, for your body, but specifically from the angle of how to eat from your brain. It talks about blood sugar regulation, lowering inflammation, supporting gut health and getting the at the proper nutrients to support your brain. So there's four tiers of brain health nutrition. Supplementation may be appropriate and might be needed. And so in that case, talk to your naturopath because I can help you or whoever you work with can help you strategize and come up with a list and not just feel overwhelmed with all these things that you're taking. You're not sure how they're working. We start to break it down. Yeah. You have some signs of zinc deficiency beyond your OCD. Let's get you on a zinc. This is the the dose. This is the form. This is the type. This is how to take it. This is how long to take it for, et cetera. Um, we can assess your blood work and see other signs of zinc deficiency, like low neutrophils or low GGT, a liver enzyme, et cetera. And then, um, you know, amino acids. And so amino acids, I think of as like a higher up tier therapy for more symptomatic relief. They're 
any scene is a little bit different, but there are some downsides to taking 5-HTP long-term. You definitely can't take 5-HTP if you're already on a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So you definitely want to talk to your naturopath, your naturopathic doctor about this and make sure that, um, th- that you're being assessed for what medications you're taking, what your risk factors are, and whether it'd be helpful to be on 5-HTP, whether that's a recommendation, like top of the list. NAC and inositol could also be very helpful. And, um, and again, talk to your ND because like I said, I don't often recommend inositol, not just because of the inconvenience of it as a supplement and that I, I prefer NAC, um, at, at lower doses. And I, and I, we often find good results from working nutritionally, loosening up that fixed worry circuit, and then you can start implementing behavior therapy. So a couple things to check out, to check out as, as you finish this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Check out the book Brain Lock by Jeffrey Schwartz. You can also Google him and look at some YouTube videos he's given, some lectures he's given on OCD. You can check out my course, Feed Your Head, and that will get that will walk you through how to care for your brain nutritionally. Nutrition is a major factor in brain health, right? And I know we've emphasized behavior therapy because of the nature of OCD being a brain circuit disorder, a cognitive disorder, but nutrition is going to help you do that work. And we can't state that enough, right? Like you can't say that somebody won a gold medal in the Olympics because of nutrition right? There was a million other things that went into it, but nutrition was absolutely essential for getting that far and for doing all the things that they did. So thank you for listening, everybody. That was my um, podcast on OCD. It's not me. It's my OCD. Let me know if you have any questions. Please like, share, and subscribe this. If you're listening to this on Apple, can you give me a five-star review? It'll help make this podcast more available to people. This is all done free. Um, if you can share this with people, if you know someone who suffers from OCD or who you think might be dealing with OCD, share this podcast with them, let them know what naturopathic medicine, what behavioral therapy can do for them. They don't need to suffer anymore. There can be uh, very great strides taken and great results, um, experienced from doing some of these therapies and, and getting support for OCD. It's not just medication as the only option. And it's not just, exposure and response prevention either. There are many other options that could be helpful for you. So you don't need to suffer, but your suffering is valid. It's not you, it's your OCD. Thanks guys for listening.